0: in the kingdoms of Wales during the Middle Ages? What happened when the Normans arrived? And what became of Owen Glyndŵr's rebellion? These are just some of the questions covered in today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, as we delve headfirst into medieval Wales. Our expert for today's episode is Swansea University's Matthew Stevens. And putting the questions to Matthew is our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans.
3: In today's Everything You Wanted to Know About episode, we're going to be considering the history of medieval Wales, which we'll loosely cover between the early medieval period and the reign of Henry VIII, though we do have some questions there that might take us outside of that remit a little bit today, and we're going to see where the conversation goes around this very big topic. Um, As always, it is is a big topic, and our expert today is going to be tackling popular search queries as well as some listener questions. Uh, I'm really pleased to welcome Dr Matthew Stevens, who is Associate Professor of History at the University of Swansea and whose specialties include medieval Welsh history and medieval colonisation. Thanks for joining us, Matthew. Thank you. So to start us off, perhaps we can look at what the nation that's now Wales looked like in the early medieval period, as perhaps a very brief look at what happened after the departure of Roman forces and what that means for the development of the Welsh kingdoms.
4: Well, uh... Wales looks as much like anything like a checkerboard in the early Middle Ages. The idea of Wales as as one nation is really something that comes about sort of later, you know, hundreds of years after the Romans have departed, really. I I think everybody in the Middle Ages who fancies himself a king has an image of of possessing everything they see. But in reality, uh, it was only by the, say, 700, so uh, 300 years after the Romans left, that all of Wales fit into one of uh, probably four or five reasonably substantial kingdoms that made up Wales by then.
3: So in what sort of regions were these kingdoms uh, developing and under whose leadership?
4: Well it's really a matter of of, of kind of local kings or really in our minds uh, probably the better analogy would be local warlords. So if we go around Wales in a clockwise direction, if we start in uh, Snowdonia in the northwest, uh, the Kingdom of Gwynedd emerges. If we move uh, to about two o'clock on the clock, uh, we get to the Kingdom of Powys. And then in the southeast, we have Morganog, um, and in the southwest, we have the And those are the, the four principal kingdoms that that get rolling by the what we would call the earlier Dark Middle Ages in Wales. So there's some kind of chaos after the Romans leave and there's some, some people come from Ireland and nobody quite knows who's in charge. But by the time we get to the year 7800 800, those four kingdoms make up most of the population of Wales. They cover most people.
3: So where do these kingdoms sit then um, with Christianity? Uh, when had Christianity come to Wales and how is it, um, where does it sit in these kingdoms?
4: Well, Christianity probably came to Wales uh, together with the Roman legions, this is the same way it came to the rest of Britain. We have to remember that there are, there are three major uh, permanent Roman uh, outposts in Roman Britain, and one of those three is, is in Carleon in southeast Wales, and it probably had about 5,000 troops there at any one time. Plus, in addition to troops, there are lots of other sort of sundry people, wives, camp followers, other people who would have come to Wales from around the Roman Empire, and those people would have brought Christianity with them. If we think about Wales as a whole, in the Roman period, there were probably only about 100,000 people in all of Wales. So those 5,000 people in Carleone made up about 120 of all people in Wales. And we know that there were Christians among them for a variety of reasons, but one of the most... Uh, um, sort of solid pieces of evidence we have is that the only two Christian martyrs we know of from Roman Britain were in Carleone, uh, two chaps named Julius and Aaron, who were probably martyred around about the year 300 in one of these moments when the kind of Christianizing Roman Empire sort of pushes back against Christianity. You have to remember the kind of Roman Empires fancied themselves to be worshipped as gods, plus as a kind of older Roman pantheon, and so Christianity sort of challenged that uh, time and again before it, it eventually is adopted as the religion of the empire.
3: Okay. Um, if I can ask about the differences in these four four kingdoms that you've already mentioned, how different or disparate would uh, would someone's lives have been in, in for, for instance, Gwyneth and Powys? How different would they have been or would it have been quite similar?
4: Well, out, out of the four, the, the two in the West, uh, are very much orientated towards the Irish Sea. So if you're in Snowdonia in the kingdom of Gwynedd, or if you're in de Hebarth in the southwest, most people thought of, of the kind of the bigger world as being across the Irish Sea. And there's lots of trade and movement of people uh, around the Irish Sea. Of course, St. Patrick uh, spent some time in Wales before he goes back to Ireland to convert the island to Christianity. And that, that's kind of representative of, of, of how their world worked. Whereas if you were in Powys, uh, in the east, you would have been looking towards England. Uh, there's this uh, very old history in Powys of the early medieval kingdom of Powys, thinking of Shrewsbury as its centre. Now, in our mind, that's that's firmly just on the English side of the border now. But but right in the late Middle Ages, the kings of Powys were looking east, thinking, "Oh, if only we could get east of the Severn again." And it's a bit the same in in southeast Wales that they would have looked east across the Severn to their connections for trade. Immigration,
3: and in terms of any sort of sense of um, different identity, there's obviously that 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 you mentioned just there. But th- did that lead to any sort of conflict between these kingdoms? What what sort of power struggles might have been happening there?
4: Yeah, these kingdoms didn't really think of themselves as as having a whole lot in common. You know, today we in our mind we we think of Wales as one nation, and so of course we kind of project that back into the past. But for people living them. They weren't very they weren't very friendly neighbors with one another. I think uh, Professor David Stevenson had a look at the, the Kingdom of Powys, uh, which, for practical terms, was based around where Welshpool is now. And Powys was at, at war, an armed conflict with the Kingdom of Gwynedd, something like eleven or twelve times uh, across the late eleven hundreds and early twelve hundreds. And these small kingdoms really tried to, not so much uh, conquer their neighbours by taking their territory but kind of go over and raid and brutalise their neighbours to the point where the neighbouring kingdom would go, all right, all right, we put our hands up, you know, you can tell us what to do, you can be in charge.
3: Okay, not very friendly. Um, we've got a question here and I don't know if this is uh, the appropriate place to put this question but we've got a question here um, by from a listener called Ella Tay, thanks Ella, about the laws of Hawadha. I wonder if um, we could talk about those and what mm-hmm. that meant.
4: Yeah, the, the laws of Hylda are really interesting because they, you know, they represent a a vision of Wales as a single place. So at the same time that I've been saying, look, you know, these are little kingdoms struggling against each other all the time. The uh, king of Hebarth in the southwest, uh, you know, who we now know is Howell the Good, Hylda, uh, he supposedly, after asserting control over most of Wales as a kind of warlord, he. He, uh, he makes friends with the English King Athelstan. He goes on pilgrimage to Rome. You know, he tries to really put himself out there as a, a, a sort of something, not exactly a national leader, but closer to it maybe than we'd seen before. Keep in mind, he never has all of Wales under his thumb. But he comes home and he invites uh, delegates from all different parts of Wales to come and try and sort of compile Welsh law. Because at this time, law was very much whatever the local custom was, you know, um, and that could be anything about how you decide which farmer owns a field, how do you work it out when person A owes person B some money, and so forth. And we don't really have a record of what happened when this gathering took place. But from that time, lawyers, who much like today are their own kind of little tribe or cult, they start to put together, you know, a customary law for Wales. And it, it sort of over the following hundreds of years, uh, between the... Time of Yorða, back you know in the late late eight hundreds, up to the eleven hundreds. Over that really long time, it becomes the kind of accepted law of the land, and we start to get written texts of it, and we have today a a surprising number of these little law handbooks that lawyers carried around in the Middle Ages. And so, the law of Yorða. it it really sort of sows the seeds that a few hundred years later would come to fruition as a a kind of idea of a national identity or or something we could all hang our hat on in Wales.
3: And what are some other, or who are rather, some other leaders who then take up this mantle of um, the idea of these kingdoms coming together?
4: Well, we kind of have a round-robin affair where uh, in Gwynedd in the northwest, we have a, a king called Owen Gwynedd who tries to project his power over most of Wales. Uh, and then we have a bit when the princes of Powys come in in the uh, 12th century. And then finally, at the end of the 12th century, we get a chap in southwest Wales in the kingdom of Haybarth called the Lord Rees. And, and he's probably the most successful or has the longest uh, impact up until the end of the 1100s, because he, he has a really concerted program of building parish churches. Wales is getting infrastructure. Uh, for the first time really in the 1100s, and we see bridges being built and little stone churches popping up everywhere. And it's a kind of huge, we might even say a kind of huge European project in the 1100s to make sure every man, woman, and child can walk to a parish church on a Sunday. And that's that's a big ask if you think about kind of the remote mountainous nature of lots of parts of Wales. And the Lord Rees in southwest Wales, that's his contribution to what we might now read back as a national project. So if, if Hauða kicked off this movement toward the law, the Lord Rees kicks off this big push to make sure we all have a parish church. And, and there is a, a kind of momentum there.
3: Right. Well, we're, we're in the 11th century there then. And, and obviously something pretty big happens to... Um, Britain in, in the 11th century, as well, in terms of the Norman invasion. And what does this mean for, um, I'm going to say Wales, as you know, I know that term isn't necessarily relevant at this stage.
4: Yeah, we, you know, historians are often asked or kind of coached to say things like uh, bombastic things like, it, it changed everything. But uh, when it comes to the, the Norman conquest in England, the kind of spillover impact of that on Wales it really did change everything in the sense that up until then kind of Welsh politics is very much about these, these little kingdoms, these little groups, you know, fighting against each other. And they're quite happy to kind of welcome in maybe some mercenaries from Ireland or maybe some fighters from Scotland, or maybe even to draft in some help from across the English border in their own affairs. But these chaps turn up from the outside, uh, and the first Normans come into Wales, uh, in 1067, and they set up what are now Chepstow and Monmouth, two fortifications and two towns on the west side of the border that would be there permanently. And the fact that these chaps come in and they don't just participate in this system of fighting and then leave again, but rather they stay, uh, that that starts the ball rolling in a completely different direction. And as the Normans come, they conquer areas of land, they tend to push the the Welsh people out into upland areas and they take the best lowland farmland, and they give it to people they bring in from England to farm it. Uh, they're the first people to really uh, circulate coins in large numbers in Wales for the purpose of being able to collect those coins back into in taxes. In order to make that possible, they set up regular markets and fairs where farmers are expected to sell their produce. Uh, all of this changes the landscape in, in a really... Uh, durable, permanent way. And it starts in South East Wales and, and stretches along the South Coast of Wales. The, the first conquered places are, of course, around, you know, sort of uh, the Gower out through Pembroke, Glamorgan, of course. And, and it creates a two-tier society where we have a kind of native Wales in the Northwest and a conquered Wales in the South and East, where there are these kind of uh, almost segregation type divisions between upland welshries and lowland englishries as they would be called and there's a quite a modern economy and then there's a kind of economically trying to avoid this word backward but really quite an economically backward north and west in wales and all of that really starts with the arrival of the normans
3: and is there any um Pushback, or or um, what what sort of um, resistance comes from uh, the native people in Wales?
4: Well, at, at first the Welsh are pretty divided. Really, uh, probably the only man who could reasonably have called himself king of all Wales, Gruffudd uh, uh, ap he dies in ten sixty three. So if you sort of check your calendar, that's only four years before the Normans first arrive in Wales. And so things are in a really kind of chaotic state. Uh, meanwhile, this big Norman war machine, which has just conquered England, is on the move and it, it's pressing in the South Wales. And so it's it's really only when uh, King Stephen comes to the throne uh, in England and you see a big civil war erupt in England that finally Wales gets a breather. Uh, and so that's that's. 100 years down the road, basically. And, you know, it's at this time that the Welsh push back a little and and we see some a kind of balance reached. I mean, really, by the time we get to the uh, mid-1100s, we have a, a reasonable balance of power between Welsh and Normans or English in Wales. And, and that's going to develop a little bit, more or less stay the same until we get the next big wave of conquest uh, in the 1200s. The, the conquest as we know it now, you know, under Edward I.
3: Yes, right. Well, I I, I would like to get onto that in a, in a little while, but I wonder if we can dip out of that timeline just briefly to address another listener question. Um, we've got one here from Jeff Tobin who has asked, was Geoffrey of Monmouth real or, or was he, as uh, Francis Uriah Locke claims, a pseudonym of Henry of Blois?
4: Okay. This is really specific. Uh, and, and this is something that if you're, if you're sort of into medieval Welsh history, you've probably taken note of in the last few years because, uh, uh, Francis Lott has made a big stir this chap with some, some claims saying, you know, you all think that Gough of Monmouth, you know, is, is basically from the March of Wales, that he's, he's a Welshman and, uh, you know, that Wales has a claim of a claim to him as it were, but really he's a Frenchman from Normandy. And, uh, Godfrey of Monmouth, you you probably know already, I'm sure, but he's uh, uh, the author of the History of the Kings of Britain, from which we get eventually all these stories about Arthur and Camelot and and the whole Arthurian legend as we know it now, right? So he kind of originates that stuff uh, out of kind of Welsh legend together with sort of ideas of chivalry and society as as they were in the 1100s. Now, I would say this. We all love a good conspiracy theory. Uh, however, Godfrey of Mammoth really was a real guy. The, the contention here is that uh, Godfrey of Mammoth, as we know him, a chap who became a Benedictine monk in Monmouth uh, and then spent most of his life thereafter knocking around Oxford where he witnesses various sort of property deeds and things like this, uh, the conspiracy theory goes, ah, that's just a pseudonym for this other chap, Henry of Blois, who was born in Normandy. Henry had been the grandson of William the Conqueror, and he was at Glastonbury Abbey. And if you believe this uh, Francis Lott chap, he says, uh, this aristocratic uh, Henry of Blois he actually wrote the Arthurian legends, and then he used this Goffi Mamet pseudonym. Uh, what I would say about that is, you might use a pseudonym to write a book. But it's a bit of a strange thing to also use a pseudonym when you're witnessing your neighbor's property deeds in Oxford over the course of 10 or 12 years. So I, I think that's that's about as far as that discussion needs to go. And I, and I think despite this kind of intellectual challenge, I think we can still claim of Mammoth as, as sort of one of our own.
3: Wonderful. Okay, great answer. Thank you. Um, so if we go back then to this um sort of two-tier society that you've mentioned perseveres into the the 1200s um we have a question here about the treaty of montgomery which um correct me if i'm wrong this is Llewellyn the great and henry the third is that correct it, uh, it's
4: the the last and henry the third the
3: last and henry the yeah. third um, what can what can you tell our listeners about that
4: okay so we, so if we have the emergence in the 1100s of a, a kind of two-tier system, a kind of colonized south and east Wales that's under foreign control and a, a native-ruled north and west, well, there's no formal relationship between the two sides there. Uh, for example, back in the reign of King John, when Magna Carta was wrote up, uh, a line had gone in there to say, well, in addition to all these things we're worried about in England, we just want to include here, I mentioned that in in uh, Welsh areas, things ought to be sorted out by Welsh methods. And in the March of Wales, this kind of conquered borderland, they ought to be sorted out by the custom and the march. And so you can see there the emergence formally of the existence of this two-tier system. The problem is acknowledging it exists doesn't actually set any lines around it. You know, Who exactly should control whom or be lord over whom or get the tax money from whom? And so, Swananabgrave, one of the last, as he were, uh, takes advantage of the next big civil war in England, when Henry III is fighting against his own barons in England. Uh, Swanan, who's based in Gwynedd in 1067, he goes to the king and he says, "Look, I am willing to recognise we've got this two-tier society." But what I want from you is to put it down in writing exactly how far my control as Prince of Wales ought to go. And uh, because Henry's up against it and he could really use some cash uh, and so on agrees to pay quite a lot of money, they go for it. And they write up this contract and so on basically is given. And here's where it gets sticky. Lordship over all of the Welsh lords of Wales. Uh, In exchange for that, he has to pay 25,000 marks. And it's hard to put that in modern money, but it would be the equivalent of. Llewelyn had to come up with an amount of money that's equal to, I tried to work this out, about two weeks wages for every single household in Wales every year for 10 years. And so it's an extraordinary amount of money he agrees to pay. And so he's paid all this cash, or he's promised to pay it anyway. And at first he's making the payments, although after a little bit he feels a squeeze and he can't keep up the payments. Uh, And he thinks he's got a good deal, except when he comes to sort of claiming, quote, lordship over all the Welsh lords of Wales. Because if you remember when I said the creation of this two-tier society in the south and east of Wales... What it did was it pushed Welsh people up into these upland areas called Welshries and it uh, cleared the sort of lowland good farmland for English immigrants. I mean that's unjust in itself but so those Welsh people living in the uplands who did they owe their allegiance to? Is it this new Prince of Wales or is it their, their local man who they've been paying taxes to? And so the this is the sticking point of the Treaty of Montgomery. And, and that's what leads uh, really famously uh, uh, to the construction of Carfilly Castle, because down around Cardiff, of course, is in, in English hands, but just up at Carfilly, that's far enough north, there's a lot of Welsh people living up there. And Slewelyn trundles down and says, ha, under this treaty, you now pay your taxes to me. And the, the lords of Glamorgan come out to Cardiff and go, nope, nope, just, just not having that. And and so they knock up Carfilly Castle, which is a huge lump of a thing, in a big hurry, uh, to try and keep Solan out. And and this is kind of sums up the whole tension and disagreement that that swirls around that treaty up until war breaks out between the English and the Welsh uh ten years later. Mm-hmm.
3: That makes a lot of sense. Yes, um, and before we do go into into that that war, that next step, um, I'd like to talk about another Llewellyn because I did skip us ahead. So we've got Llewellyn, Llewellyn ap Griffith, who is the last Welsh Prince of Wales, but we also have Llewellyn the Great. Who who was
4: he? Okay, so if we back up, Llewellyn the Great is the grandfather of Llewellyn the Last, and we spent a lot of time talking about quote unquote Llewellyn the Last because he is the last Prince of Wales. He's a man who who gets this treaty that formally creates the Principality in 1067. But in fact, he wasn't any more powerful than his grandfather had been 20 years before, Lloran, uh, Lloran the Great. Now, Lloran the Great had had kind of been on-again, off-again friends with Bad King John over in England. And he'd, he'd kind of manipulated his sort of sometimes friendly, sometimes unfriendly relationship uh, to his best advantage. So, for example, he'd married Bad King Jong, John's illegitimate daughter, Joan, to kind of create a family tie there. Uh, that worked out for both of them, because under English law, children born out of wedlock didn't really have any formal rights. But under Welsh law, they didn't really care. And so, from a Welsh perspective, it was a good a good match, you know, for Slurland. And from King John's point of view, he we thought, well, I'm, I'm just, marrying off my illegitimate daughter quietly to the side um, but so and John did have some kind of relationship and so went with John and brought Welsh troops to fight with John in Scotland for example and so he's really kind of upping his game and participating on the kind of bigger British uh, scene and that uh, does go sour and in the end John does try and invade Wales but uh, he tries to take troops in the North Wales, into North Wales, and they have terrible weather, and uh, there's there's rainstorms, they don't get much, they don't get much further than the Freudians, the Freudian range, you know, and they have to turn back east again. And so, so one of the great, uh, he managed to play the game of politics, to really climb the greasy pole, and to create a political environment where the kingdom of Gwynedd the Northwest Wales had enough power that his grandson, uh, could realistically create the Principality of Wales in 1267. And so he kind of laid all of the foundations that his grandson, Edward and the last, turned into the, quote, Principality of Wales uh, with the Treaty of Montgomery.
3: Okay, interesting stuff. Um, and we've got a listener question here from someone called Adolgid, who is asking about that sort of Gwyneth, um, sorry, Gwynedd um, History, and they have asked, is the Gwynedd-centric narrative counterproductive to understanding medieval Welsh history?
4: Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can give you a really good, solid answer now. Yes. And uh, that way of telling Welsh history comes from uh, a man named J.E. Lloyd, who, who is really the kind of father of uh, Welsh history as an academic discipline. So he lives uh, in the late 1800s early 1900s and he writes a two volume uh, history of Wales published in 1911 called A History of Wales from the Earliest Times to the Edwardian Conquest. And this is part of this kind of Victorian movement towards nation building that you see all throughout the British Empire, you know, not just not just in Britain but throughout the British Empire. You know that the different peoples that had been absorbed over the centuries in the British Empire starting to look at their own history, write their own history and say, no, no, we have a voice here too. And J. J. Floyd, he is influential in all kinds of respects, uh, helping to set up a a kind of publication series for Welsh history, just really giving Welsh history academics a voice. But in his kind of striving to create a story of Wales, what he does is he, he reads it backwards. And he says, okay, Llanan the Last and his grandfather Llanan the Great came closest of anybody to creating what we might call a kind of constitutional, l- legally made, you know, Welsh nation. And so let's let's read history back and say anyone who's against those fellows is a baddie and anybody who's with them is a goodie. And so, for example, Everything becomes about the history of Gwynedd when the kingdom of Powys right next door, as I said just a, a few minutes ago, of course, they were in armed conflict with Gwynedd again and again as the kings of Gwynedd tried to force their way in and, and nick parts of their territory and, you know, just generally make trouble for. And uh, so the, the sort of uh, lords of Powys have been seen as the sort of great baddies of Welsh history and the princes of Gwynedd as the goodies. But that's it's just not fair. It's just totally not on.
3: And so these um, sort of re, uh, repositionings and re, revisions are happening at the moment? Have they happened recently? Uh, what, what's changing about Welsh history right now?
4: Yeah, I think we're going through a big period of, of kind of revisiting, uh, you know, revisiting the way in which we've interpreted the history of Wales in the last hundred years. I mean, uh, Floyd has his place. Uh, Professor Hugh Price at Bangor University has recently written a really good biography of J. Floyd and, and how he perceived history and, and how he taught it. And, and so that kind of examining the, the historians is going on on one hand. And then on the other hand, uh, Professor David Stevenson has, has recently, I think about four years ago, published a really good uh, one-volume history of the Kingdom of Powys, which actually looks at the Kingdom of Powys from the point of view of the Princes of Powys. And if you start reading it from their point of view, then, of course, the, the princes of Gwyneth were the baddies, you know, clearly all, all the time. All, all of this comes from us taking our modern idea of Wales as one nation and trying to force it back on into the Middle Ages at a time when Wales was always comprised, in the eyes of, of Welsh people living then, of two or three or four kingdoms. You know, Wales as a nation, as we know it now, is really a, a kind of, in as a an idea of a political nation of Wales is an invention very much of the turn of the 19th and 20th century. And J. E. Floyd's part of that story. I mean, socially, culturally, linguistically, Wales has always been what we would now recognize as a nation. But the, the idea of a, a political nation, you know, as a kind of government to the people, that's very much a kind of idea that we've been trying to push back into Wales for the last hundred years. And it doesn't really work. <laughs>
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
4: We have a system that's emerged by the late 1300s in which most of the uh, English landlords of Wales are absentee. And they, they treat their possessions in Wales, which are outside of the normal English legal framework, as this kind of special place where they can raise as much taxes as they want, as unscrupulously as they want, Uh, And they can go out there and fancy themselves king of a very small kingdom once or twice a year and have a big party, basically. And that's that's kind of where we're at.
2: We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting.
3: well that's that's such interesting stuff and and i'm almost loath to move us um back towards what we were talking about a few moments ago um and so you've taken us up to the treaty of montgomery and sort of um just uh, barely a few years later there's another hugely significant um shift in wales's future what what happens um with the well the conquest of wales
4: well the the very really short 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 version is uh sworn the last the lapcroft He couldn't pay his bills. (laughs) He couldn't. He just absolutely could not afford that treaty. If you imagine this chap saying to the people of uh, the Principality of Wales, particularly the people of Gwynedd, all right, every household has to pay two weeks income worth of taxes every year for the next 10 years. In addition to your regular tax burden, people don't want to pay. They find ways not to pay. And he, he just couldn't squeeze enough money out of his own people to pay the bills, basically. And then, he, of course, he didn't want to pay them because, as demonstrated by, you know, Carfilly Castle being knocked up sort of in his face to keep him away from uh, trying to control upland Welsh, you know, outside of his home region, he didn't want to pay either. And, and so this leads to a big falling out between him and Henry III's successor, Edward I, Edward Longshanks, Edward Hammer of the Scots, you know, the, all of the nicknames that man has. And uh, at first, Edward treats it like, uh, as he puts it, when he pitches going to war against the Welsh in 1277, he says, uh, we need to, to uh, prosecute a war against, quote, a, a rebel baron and a disturber of the peace. That's that's where Edward's at in 1277. He's a kind of international playboy. He's just been on crusade. He stopped in France and made peace in a small civil war in Gascony on the way home. You know, he's really full of himself. And the idea that this chaplain up in his mountain in North Wales is, is giving him two fingers. It just drives him nuts. And so and he, he goes to war. But something really radical happens after that, and, and something really dark, you know. I mean, maybe the in my mind, the kind of darkest turn in pre-modern Welsh history, which is, okay, there's a war in 1277. After that, they make peace. Llewellyn is confined to just Snowdonia, uh, Edward I invites him over to Worcester Cathedral, where he presides over Sloyland's wedding. I mean, it's a real kind of diplomatic, international, through-gritted-teeth love-in. You know, the King of Scotland trundles down. You know, it's, it's a big international affair. Uh, the problem is rebellion then breaks out again in 1282, five years later. And this time, uh, Edward, whatever goodwill this very arrogant man had, is is gone, and when he pitches it to his barons the second time around that they should stump up some taxes and raise an army and go into wales rather than referring to what rather than referring to Llewellyn as a a disturber of the peace he says no we are on a mission to quote end the malice of Llewellyn and people of his race and and that that plugs into all kind of cultural things that were happening across Europe at that time uh, what Geraldine hang a, a prominent American historian, is called, quote, the invention of racism in the Middle Ages. is this idea that was percolating to the top of European society that it really ought to be each to their own and that uh, we really are fundamentally different from other people who speak a different language or have different cultural habits. And so this is no longer political. This is now – this is – Hesitate to use the word racial, but in effect, that's what it is. You know, it's it's a second war that, yes, there's political and economic dimensions, but there's a really dark sort of racial dimension too.
3: Right. And and how do these um grudges and um what what's the the intent there and what does this lead towards on the actions of Edward I?
4: Well, it, it leads to um creating a system throughout the say, one-third or 40% of Wales that falls into the Crown's hands of legal discrimination. Uh, so Welsh and English people are separate under law. The Welsh pay higher taxes, uh, particularly following a, a rebellion that comes in 1295, a, f- a few years down the road. Edward tightens these restrictions up even more. You know, w- Welshmen are not to hold public office. Welshmen are not to bear arms. You know, they, they can't carry arms. Welshmen are not to congregate in groups. A Welshman may not act as a witness in court against an Englishman. Uh, and it just goes on and on. And, and those regulations would hang around in various forms, some, often ignored but sometimes used against people right up until 1536.
3: Uh, and this is the Statute of Rieslan, is that right? Oh, well, the, I could be saying something.
4: Yeah. Well, no. The the ordinances against the Welsh, uh, most of them are, are separate. They're in a, a separate document from 1295. But the the Statute of Rhuddlan in Wales also recognises differences between English and Welsh. So the Statute of Rhuddlan is this document by which Edward creates his kind of legal settlement of Wales after conquest. He says. Uh, the principality will not become part of the English realm, but it shall remain the sort of private possession of the kings of England. And we're going to create our own mini legal system here. And it did have a lot of provisions in it, which the Welsh came to see as very much against them. For example, if you're a Welsh farmer, you could not legally sell your farm. Uh, Of course, you you have a tax burden, you have to pay taxes on that land, but no matter how unprofitable you become, you cannot legally sell it you could lease it to another person for four years at a time. Uh, And if you did that long enough, you could kind of by de facto sell it because eventually people forget, you know, that it's only on lease. You're depending upon a system where people kind of forget in the long term that you've kind of quietly got out from under it. But the, the whole vision here is one where Welsh people are kind of rural farming folk, right? And that they're not part of the kind of modern economic, Town based English social system where people are buying and selling things, and maybe they start a business and so forth. Um, there is a little good in the Statute of Wales. Uh, it, it gave women a lot of rights they didn't have under Welsh law. Women could not own property separate from a man under uh, Welsh law, but under the uh, reformed law created by the Statute of Rutherland, women, if they were a widow or if they didn't have any brothers they could inherit or own or buy or sell property and so there is some good to come out of it but but it again there's a dark side to that document
3: yes how interesting i had I'd no idea about that element that's really fascinating um we've had a lot of questions about uh, castles of medieval wales and and i guess this is the probably the time to talk about it we don't necessarily have a specific question but can we talk a little bit about the development of those uh, structures and what that meant for the landscape of wales
4: okay uh Let's see where to, where to begin with with a, with a kind of parachute into castles uh, so they're, they're mostly symbolic most of the time and that's really important to, to keep in mind most of them uh, were originally lime washed which would have made them a kind of off white uh and don't think fairy tale exactly i can't remember where it is but in, in south wales about 10 years ago uh, a small medieval tower was restored and the decision was taken to lime wash it to make it look realistic uh, it was period appropriate. Unfortunately, the lime wash got some bacteria in it. It turned a kind of off pink after a while. It was hideous, <laughs> and, and uh, that's that's kind of the vision of these castles that, that you should have in mind. You know, uh, not the kind of austere naked stone, but the, the hideous, slightly filthy looking lime washing. With the the uh, most of which had, of course, had toilets built into the castle. We'd go to a, a little bit of the tower that stuck, maybe just you know, 20 centimeters over the wall and down it would fall. And so you can imagine the kind of the brown streaks there. <laughs> but these are all really practical. It's not what you might think of. You know, these are not big, beautiful structures, but they're they're really symbolic, you know, of the, uh, the fact that, no, these are the new people in charge. And the most important uses of them were, this is where you went to pay your taxes. Uh, if you were called into local court for... Even the smallest of things, uh, let's say if you had a booth and you were selling eggs and you started selling 20 minutes before the official start time of market, you'd get a fine. Uh, You know, these type of small things. And and medieval people were really litigious. Uh, We reckon that the medieval, typical medieval peasant probably would have been in court maybe once once a year, once every couple of years. Now, most of those are the equivalent of parking tickets. But that's probably more often than than we would now pay a fine or a parking ticket, right? Uh, And all of that takes place in the castle. And so it's this constant interaction with this, you know, big, ugly building built by the outsider that that creates a kind of psychological effect. And most of the time, that's the real function of the castle, right? Yes, there's military aspects. Every 20 years, there's a big rebellion, and you need to have that place of refuge to fight from. Uh, you know, to put viable things, to maybe keep people who come inside safe, you know, and so forth. But that's the minority of the time.
3: OK, well, you mentioned um, rebellion or resistance there um, coming up quite a bit. And what is the sort of situation in, in sort of the late 13th century? And then I realise we're skipping us on a bit, but we've got a question here about the revolt of Glyndŵr as well. So what's the situation for rebellion in Wales at this time?
4: Okay. Well, there are, there are two big rebellions in Wales. The, the first one comes in, in 1295. And so we're, you know, we're talking just over 10 years, uh, just over 10 years after the so-called final conquest uh, uh, of 1282 to 4. Now, that's a kind of nationally coordinated event. And uh, if I remember right, I, I think the late Sir East Davies, we, uh, called it a a sort of general outcry against the in- injustice of English governance. So this is a, a real sort of grassroots uh, grassroots rebellion. Now, it's led by a chap named Madagab Llewellyn from Anglesey, who has some connection with the old ruling house of Gwynedd, uh, and it begins with uh, taking the still under construction castle of Carnarvon by subterfuge, uh, together with a bunch of uprisings around Wales. Now, the Difficulty there is that King Edward I, still in power, and he was just raising an army to go over to France and conduct a war there. And so he has lots of troops on hand, and he can immediately bring that those forces to bear on Wales. Uh, he gets caught in Conway Castle throughout most of January 1295 in a very uncomfortable position because he had un- underestimated the opposition. But eventually, you know, spring comes, and in, in March, the uh, the Welsh defeated Uh, you know, soundly. And uh, poor Madagascar Florian is taken down to the Tower of London where he'd he'd spend the rest of his life, up to to 1312. And we kind of ask, well, why did that rebellion happen then? And the best connection people can make is that in 1292, 1293, Edward I was trying to collect the first national tax the English had imposed on Wales. And so a lot of the... Uh, causes here are financial. You know, Wales is really, on a relative basis, it's poor. The towns that are created in Wales, they, they're pretty small. It's quite agricultural. It, it's not a place. You know, for example, uh, Holland in the Middle Ages is, is quite wealthy because goods are coming in from from uh, the Holy Roman Empire in the east, and they're going out to England on the west. In Wales, goods aren't really traveling anywhere. Just out to the village, that's it. Maybe Ireland at a, at a stretch, and and the when the tax burden's ramped up, people go into rebellion. That's the. Of course, there are other senses of identity, and maybe what we might connect with the burgeoning sense of nationhood uh, involved there. But it, it's really uh, there's a big financial motivation. Glindor, uh to you know, a hundred years later, really different, really different on a, on a variety of levels. Uh, probably by Glendor, there is much more of a, of a sense of this is about Welsh people as a people uh, engaging in a rebellion against the English, you know, on a, on to a much greater degree.
3: And what are the motivating factors there beyond, obviously, the financial toll um, and the is it more the social segregation aspect of
4: it? Yeah, I I should point out that after that 1295 rebellion, that's when you see the real ratcheting up of these sort of uh, anti Welsh race race laws, right? Uh, Where the Welsh are paying high taxes, they have limited rights and all these things. And those just stay there, burbling away in the background all the way up until Glyndor, you know, for for another hundred years. And you find that the uh, general economy of all of Europe, and England, and then Wales as well, begins from the early 1390s to head into what we would call a pan-European economic depression. So, again, there's a kind of financial side. Uh, on top of this, we have a system that's emerged by the late 1300s in which most of the uh, English landlords of Wales are absentee. And they, they treat their possessions in Wales, which are outside of the normal English legal framework, as this kind of special place where they can raise as much taxes as they want, as unscrupulously as they want. uh, And they can go out there and fancy themselves king of a very small kingdom once or twice a year and have a big party, basically. And that's, that's kind of where we're at. And so the kind of rampant mismanagement of estates in Wales just accumulate over time. And you have this situation where what you find is that the amount of money going into the coffers of these absentee landowners it is lower and lower despite the fact that the tax rates are higher and higher and so there's there's a real obvious level of corruption in the middle there and it's this kind of long-term just drip 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 of things uh for example uh we have a marriage tax in in england in the middle ages right and it's a kind of a village affair and you you pay a a few t- a few pence right Uh, In Wales, you have a thing called a a mober, which originally was a a, a marriage tax, uh, sometimes crudely called a virginity tax, stereotype being that you're a virgin until you're married. And that existed under Welsh law. It was paid once. When you get married? The money goes off to the prince. That's it, right? But for example, that law is taken and kind of twisted by the kind of new English uh, overlords. And they say, okay, so this is something that only Welsh people pay. Well, let's Let's have them pay that not only when they get married, but let's let's have them pay that at every every time we have a substantiated accusation of sex outside of wedlock. So every time you're caught having an affair, you have to pay it. Uh, and then every time there's just an accusation of affair, you have to pay it. And then they get this great idea that we should put middlemen in here, who who come in once a year, once every three years, and they bid for the right to collect this insidious tax. And whoever offers to pay the English Lord the most in return for the right to collect the tax, they get the job. So, of course, they put in a a big bid. Yeah, we'll we'll pay you a large sum every year for collecting this this much-hated tax. But then they have to make a profit by collecting even more money in tax than they promised to pay up, right? And so they're just out there on, on the lookout all the time for any opportunity to be able to, to tax people. And when the people do pay the tax, it's way higher than the kind of marriage tax that they're paying back in England. I mean, there's a, there's a dreadful story from uh, Baumfeld and Yale in what's now Denbyshire of some men coming forward to local officials and saying, I'll tell you what, can, can, we, can we just reach an agreement because we can't afford to pay this tax anymore after our daughters have been accused of of, of having boyfriends outside of marriage, and we've been asked to pay this, it's, it's breaking us. So can can we can we uh, reach an agreement that our daughters carry these white rods, which indicate publicly that, that they're prostitutes, so that therefore that we can be exempt uh, from the possibility of you trying to collect this tax from us again? Oh, it's just dreadful. It's dreadful. I mean, that's probably the most extreme example I can think of, but that's the kind of working the system that you get from this of administration, and that that reaches a kind of apex against the backdrop of economic depression just before Glendor.
3: Yeah, an, an extreme example indeed. That is pretty pretty horrible, pretty um, horrible yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um. So so then uh, obviously these tensions and and these um, resentments are they're bubbling, they're brewing. Um. And so then what happens in um Onglendour's uh revolt?
4: Well, Glendor is a funny figure, and it's it's hard to know how to how to interpret him exactly. Uh, I mean, there's there's a dark side to Glendor, too, of course, right? Glendor declares, you know, he goes into rebellion. He's proclaimed Prince of Wales. He has connect, vague connections with the House of De Haybarth, in particular, in, in uh, South Wales. And so he has, you know, sort of royal blood in his veins, as it were. But this is a man who had trained as a lawyer in London, who had served with the English king, who, who's really first... Falling out with the English political establishment comes when when his neighbor, uh, Reginald de Grey, lord of the lordship of dufferin Floyd, just north of his own territory in, in Denbyshire, basically has a falling out with him over a bit of land and so refuses to pass on the post, which in this case is a summons to to raise some men and serve with the English army Uh and that that opens up a, a kind of way to say, oh no, he's a traitor because he he failed to turn up and do his duty and things like this. And so it starts with that. And at the whole at the same time, that's burbling away. You have a very unpopular English king, Richard II, uh, who's this is a chap who's when he's younger puts down the peasants' revolt in England and supposedly rides out, you know, to cut down peasants, shouting, "Peasants, here are! And peasants, ye shall remain." Probably a myth, but. But that's the guy, right, who is a really unsavory character. And he'd gone over to Ireland in 1399. Uh, so it was just before Glendore uh, to, to try and put the Irish in their place. You know, it's a nice guy. And on his way back, uh, he lands at the Hollyhead. He tries to come across North Wales and eventually at Flint Castle. He's, he's taken captive and, and he's deposed. Now, here you have a kind of opportunity presents itself. Because the, the chopper replaces him, Henry IV, the first Lancastrian king. And, and here's where we start thinking about the sort of Wars of the Roses, Lancastrians versus Yorkists right? It's the first Lancastrian king. So uh, Henry IV is equally really unpopular. And so uh, the Percy family in the north of England, they say that they're going to go into rebellion and unseat this traitorous usurper. England or says, here's a great opportunity because the Percy's had some lands in North Wales, not too far from Glyndor's own lands. They said, let's let's get together on this. And uh, when that agreement struck, the Harry Hotspur Percy, as he's called, the kind of heir to the Percy family, a big Northumbrian family from up near Scotland, he's in Wales and he raises some troops and he goes over to confront the Royal Army at Shrewsbury, what would become the Battle of Shrewsbury. If that battle had been won, probably... uh, Henry IV's kingship, you know, as usurper of the English throne would have, would have been strangled in the cradle, right? Wouldn't have, I mean, some might disagree, but I don't know. It could have come back from that blow. The problem is Hotspur, as the nickname suggests, didn't want to wait for Glendore to get his men up there so that they could do this together. And so he rides in and he's defeated at the Battle of Shrewsbury. And from that point forward, really in practical terms Glendore is going alone against England and when when someone says how close does Glendore get to success in my mind that that's it he's he's done right right there you know at, at, at the beginning as uh, as it were uh, and that's in oh when is the Battle of Shrewsbury 1403 I think 1403 or 1404 1403 I think so we're right at the beginning here and I think after that, the writing's on the wall, and it's just a matter of going as long as you can, basically. But of course, Glendore, Glen you know, he's not a real great guy. I mean, this is a guy who, who conducted a 10-year campaign of ethnic cleansing throughout Wales. He burned 40 of the 100 towns of Wales to the ground. Last time he was in Cardiff in 1404, he burned it to the ground, all except the uh, Greyfriars uh, Franciscan Monastery. I and mean, the rest of the town, he burned it to the ground. When I heard a few years ago that Cardiff was trying to raise... Uh, money for another public statue of Glendora, I thought, well, that's that's grand. Last time he was there, he'd burn it to the ground. You know, he's not, by. I mean, by UN standards, by any modern estimation, like straight to the war crimes tribunal for, for ethnic cleansing. You know, it's the guy who spent 10 years trying to kill every Englishman in Wales. I mean, there's apologists out there. But there's, there's not much way around that, you know. It's not a nice guy.
3: Mm, yeah, a complex guy character a complex history but um so what what ends up um happening to Glendor? And, and perhaps yeah we can touch a bit more on that legacy how that evolves and how that's become what it is today
4: yeah well that, i mean the short answer is we don't really know what happens to Glendor. uh maybe uh, some french troops are invited over he, he tries some some international wrangling and and a few french troops you know a couple thousand landed southwest wales and Glyndor gets together with him and he burns Cardiff and he, he heads over to, <laughs> heads over to uh, Woodbury Hill in Worcestershire, where there's a kind of standoff between Glyndor and his French allies in one hand and the uh, English army on the other hand. And some people say, well, you know, that's, that's, that's the kind of high point of the rebellion. But I, I think really, I mean, what happened there was they looked at each other for a couple of days and, and the Welsh army couldn't get any food, really. They couldn't resupply themselves. And so they just had to drift back into Wales and eventually disappear and that's what glendor himself does you know it's that kind of moment when this is it you either go down and go down in glory and flames or you you fade away and and the army itself and glendor i think at that moment you know again the writing was on the wall they were going to fade away and the fact that glendor uh some years later uh, slips out of Harlech castle never to be seen again as as uh, as the castle's taken it, it really it just fits a broader pattern of uh you know Bravado and a, a bit of hope, and then just fading away, rather than a blaze of glory. I mean, in practical terms, uh, maybe, uh, maybe he's in Mornington Straddle in Herefordshire. You know, uh, buried in a state where his daughter lived. That's maybe where he slipped off to. There's rumors there. Um, maybe he's in Kimbleton Chapel near Bletchster. You know, there's lots of theories, but nobody knows. He was really effective at disappearing.
3: And he's become this symbol that, um, well, of, I suppose, the, the the push for Welsh independence. I mean, how, you've already mentioned the complexity of, of his own aims and own actions, but um, where does he sit in the sort of Welsh consciousness today? How is he broadly remembered?
4: Well, I mean, I, I think uh, today, of course, he's, he's kind of venerated as a kind of well, Welsh hero, Uh, But part of that, I mean, that has, again, has much more to do with the kind of late 19th, early 20th century movement towards building Wales as a political nation from a kind of social and cultural nation into a political nation, uh, supported by J.E. Floyd and others. Floyd also wrote a biography of Glendore. You know, uh, it was part of that broader nation building project. It's interesting when I ask undergraduate students at Swansea, you know, how do you feel about Glendore? Are you interested in Glendore? I teach a course in late medieval Welsh society of course and most of them say I'm not interested tired of that I've had it had Glendore in school Glendore out the ears don't want to hear about Glendore anymore Uh, which surprises me and so I think it's much more in the kind of popular history dimension where you pick up a book in a bookstore than it is in the kind of academic inquiry dimension that we find Glendore living large you know I I suppose the Yes Cymru movement's probably adopted Glendore and. Some various ways. I don't know. Haven't haven't checked, (laughs) but I suspect he's somewhere in in, in various chat rooms uh, uh, being discussed right now, Uh, but probably without the warts, as it were, rather than warts and all.
3: Brilliant, right? Interesting, interesting stuff. Um, if we can move on, then well, sort of moving on, sort of moving backwards, because you've already mentioned um, Henry the Fourth, um, Lancastrian king, um, sort of sparks this this uh, conflict uh, known as the Wars of the Roses that racks um, uh, England. Uh, well, and um, the region during the the fifteenth century. How was Wales affected by the Wars of the Roses?
4: Um, there's an interesting transformation that happens before between England or and the outbreak of the Wars of the Roses. I think by the time the Glendore Rebellion's over, in every sense, Welsh society is exhausted. I mean, the fact that Glendore burnt 40 of the roughly 100 towns of Wales, and most importantly, he burnt the biggest, most important towns, like Cardiff, means the country's in a shambles, economically. Uh, the, the sort of estimated economic output of Wales, the geographical area we know as Wales today is, is down 50, 60%, doesn't recover all of the old social bonds that held society together. I, I think are very much broken. Uh, what we see is, is a kind of rise of, a, a relatively small number of, of really rich families. What, uh, Cerise Davies, uh, the late professor of history of Oxford called the the rise of the quote squirearchy, and he he said that uh, rather than the uh, rather than gentry squirearchy, very consciously because it it calls, it calls to mind the country squire, you know the chap who is a big fish in his own little pond, but were he across the border in England would actually be quite poor, but but that kind of generation or so keen to gobble up the property of their, their recently and increasingly impoverished rural Welsh neighbours. You know, I'm thinking here of the Buck- Buckleys and Anglesey who build a big house in uh, the middle of uh, Bomaris, for example. Uh, this kind of generation, that they plug themselves into that English political system. Now, well, that has ups and downs, right? It has ups in the sense that you can make some money, you can kind of advance socially. It has downs that when the the civil war comes the wars of the roses they're pulled right into it and the wars of the roses are very much a conflict not about it's not about where does wales fit in but rather where do these individual families fit in and, and so it's quite a different situation if you look on the internet i don't know if you googled it you'd probably find some comment like uh wales was mostly lancastrian but that's you know we have two two earls of Pembroke. Uh, and these are the kind of men who influenced the future Henry King of England, Henry VII, right? Uh, one's his uncle Jasper Tudor and, and the other is William Herbert, another man of, of old Welsh descent, right? One's a Lancastrian and one's a Yorkist, you know, and both of them lead, lead Welshmen from Pembrokeshire uh, in fighting. Uh, William Herbert, of course, is, is executed, uh, uh, executed after military after military defeat in in herefordshire. Um uh, and so it's it's hard to draw any sort of concise picture of well, where does wales fit in the wars of the roses. It's not really like that. It's more like where does your local man climbing the greasy pole of of Anglo-Welsh politics and, and economics fit in?
3: Yes, that, that does make a, an awful lot of sense. Um, but you've already alluded to um, Jasper Tudor and, well, the Tudors. We've got a question from Shona, who wants very much to know about the roots of the Tudors. And I mean, it's um, perennially popular on our website in popular history. And and yeah, people would love to know where where they come from and what the Welsh roots of that, that family, that dynasty is.
4: Yeah, well, you know, the, there's no denying that the Tudors really do have genuine and deep Welsh roots. Uh, I, I've already mentioned uh, uh, Henry VII's uncle Jasper Tudor, who is Earl of Pembroke, and he's from an older family uh, that, that goes back to Anglesey. So if we look here at Henry VII's father, Edmund Tudor, uh, he's descended from this, this like Jasper, this uh, Tudor family from uh, Penmunith on Anglesey, and there the family goes all the way back to Ednaved the Khan. Uh, who was Senchal, or kind of chief administrator uh, of the Principality of Gwynedd under Tlodon the Great back in the days of King John. So, I mean, there's a really deep family history there. And Henry VII, we don't know for sure, but he he probably spoke Welsh, probably. Again, he's raised in Anglesey, or excuse me, he's raised in uh, Pembroke Castle mostly, Uh, by a combination at various times of his uncle Jasper Tudor, and then Jasper gets thrown out and replaced by William Herbert, who looks after him for a bit, and then later he finds himself back under the influence of his uncle Jasper Tudor again. But there's really deep Welsh connections there.
3: And so how does that, does that influence his his, um, later policy when it comes to, does he have any sense of Welshness that we know about or does he, how does he regard himself in that way? Do we know much about that?
4: He certainly really plays up his Welshness. So uh, 1485, he lands in Milford Bay in Pembrokeshire, which is a sort of landscape he's personally familiar with. And he sends riders with banners, with characteristically Welsh, uh, symbolism on them to go around Wales to try and garner support. And, and around 5,000 Welshmen, we think, Uh, at least 5,000 sign on to his cause and go to fight with him at Bosworth. And for a certain part of the Welsh populace, certainly the kind of more clued up in intelligentsia, the kind of poet class, they really see this as the kind of the moment when Wales goes back and conquers England, you know, after centuries of English domination, you know, when when the Wales, when the Welsh get their own back. And that's interesting because that's very much a a point of view of people in Wales, uh, certainly your average person on the street in England wouldn't wouldn't have felt that way. But it kind of speaks to his projection of Welshness that, for example, w- when Henry VII moves from Wales into England, he passes through Bristol, right? Now, there are a lot of Welsh people living in Bristol. After Glendower, the economy is wrecked in Wales, and so uh, Hereford, Bristol, Shrewsbury, Chester are just teeming with Welsh people. There's a key in uh, Bristol called Welsh Back, uh, you know, where, where they unload ships, you know, cargo from ships from Wales. Now, uh, there are a lot of Welshmen living in Bristol, some one, two, three generations removed from Wales, but they round up a chap who, who either him or his parents are from from Cardigan probably, and they immediately promote him to mayor of Bristol. So that, so that when Henry VII, the Welsh the new, uh, you know, likely Welsh king of England trundles through that they can wheel out, wheel out a Welshman to greet him. You know? So there's a little bit of, of uh, politics play there, but it says something about his, you know, at least the perception of his connection with Wales.
3: Absolutely, um, and you mentioned that there's there's a possibility there that he may have, have spoken um, Welsh or some Welsh, um, and I wanted to ask about the impact more generally, and I realise we're talking about um, a huge swathe of time again here, but from um, conquest, from Edward the First Invasion to this period now, what would that have done to um, Welsh culture, I suppose, particularly the Welsh language?
4: Well, I, one thinks that, that probably uh, there certainly was much more mixing of, I mean, I'm going to speculate here, so take this with, with a pinch of salt. But one would speculate that certainly after the, the uh, so-called final conquest of the 1280s, that there's more mixing of people in Wales in the sense that we, we no longer have this two-speed society. So all of Wales has now been conquered. And in the, in the years immediately after the English conquest of Wales, thousands and thousands of young men are recruited from Wales to go fight in the English army in Scotland. And I did some work on the kind of numbers from the muster rolls because we have really detailed lists of exactly who signed up and who, who collected their weekly pay. You know, English administration uh, all the way back to the Middle Ages is is, is uh, nothing if not a penny-counting machine. It's amazing attention to detail in these things. And uh, in terms of fighting-age men, in the first couple of decades after the conquest of Wales, maybe 25% of fighting-age men at some point served in the english army and, and these are people coming from all over wales because the economies, you know in the doldrums and, and there's not much aspiration there's no outlet for sort of uh you know the kind of constant crisis we have of of sort of particularly young male people in society feel they need to do something you know we trying to get people involved in you know sport clubs and any kind of outlet for this this you know uh, some would say it t- toxic masculinity, one might even argue, right? But, you know, whacking yourself into the army, it, that's been around a long time. You know, you can imagine the kind of re- recruiting videos we have now, you know, come, come have an adventure. Well, some of that mentality has been there right back in the Middle Ages. But people mixed from all different parts of Wales. And the same thing would have happened uh, during the course of fighting in the uh, Hundred Years' War between England and France. There are always Welsh soldiers involved there. Certainly trade with the creation of a string of English towns in Wales, it gets all joined up to some degree between England and Wales, and people are moving around. And we see a new generation of, of, of poets, of course, but we kind of think of, think of these two men as sort of opposite ends of the spectrum. So you have on the one hand, Grafid Aberinad Koch, uh, so the sort of graffed the son of the Red Judge, who... Uh, is a poet in the time of of Llanen the Last. And he writes, you know, famously when Llanen's killed. So, oh, you know, the the sky is falling, you know, the the world has ended. You know, but really that was a class of poets who were out there trying to earn their dinner by impressing a very narrow cadre of aristocratic Welsh people. On the other end, you get a a kind of much more uh, low-down, I don't know grittier level of, of kind of poet comes afterwards here. So I'm David uh, Abguilam. I'm thinking about here in the 14th century. who writes great poems about things like, like uh, you know, uh, staying in an inn overnight, and uh, you know he, he tries uh, some wine he's never had it before, and, and so he gets a full gallon. He says, "Oh, terrible mistake!" You know, <laughs> you know, and uh, these are people who are really. Anybody who has a little bit of money to patronize them, they're happy to perform to. And uh, that kind of more connected with the people, kind of uh, almost, uh, I'm trying to avoid using the phrase democratization of culture, but that, that conveys the sense of what I mean, that things becoming more ordinary, more accessible in a way, that, that happens. And it's interesting that uh, right at the end of the Middle Ages, the kind of second uh, sort of bookend of, of if you would, is, is Guter Glynn. So uh, what you have is Gutter Glynn is, uh, one of his most important patrons is is uh, William Herbert. So William Herbert is a son of the man who built Raglan Castle in the South Wales. He's a, an old Welsh family. And of course he's uh, fighting in, in the Wars of the Roses, right? And eventually, and uh, Gutter Glynn sort of follows him around and writes various poems. And he, he now represents... The establishment from the other end. He is part of this kind of at that point pan Welsh English political establishment, uh, you know, fighting in an English civil war. How how far removed can you get from following around the Prince of Wales in his conflict with the English? Here's here is William Herbert, a man who's in that system. He's fundamental to that system, right? And and of course he dies. And uh, at that point, rather than this is the end of the world. Guto Glynn uh, produces a eulogy where he he calls it uh, 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 a dance of death. You know, William Herbert has died in the dance of death, the dance of bulls, Right, Ra- rather than having die- rather than the end of the world, no, nope, this just happens. This is how it is. We play this game, you know. And I-, I like those two kind of perspectives. this kind of bookends in the period. But culture changes fast. You know, I mean, certainly I mean, compare social attitudes now to just 40 years ago. You know, I mean, culture changes really fast.
3: Absolutely. And, and um, we've chosen to sort of bookend this, this uh, episode, this chat, with uh, a listener question on uh, so this is Minnie Fay on the Laws in Wales Acts 1532 and 1542. What did they mean for Wales?
4: Relief. I think for most re- relief, uh, the fifteen thirty six. I'm trying to think what it's officially called. There is the Act. You know, we call it the Act of Union usually, but it's a, officially it's something like the Act for laws to be laws and justice to be ministered in Wales in like form as it is in England. Something like that, uh, and it meant just just what it said on the tin. So these kind of discriminatory race laws that start probably back in 1067, but really get formalized and, and embedded in the late 13th century when even the crown in 1295 is rolling them out. You know, Welshmen may not do this. Welshmen may not testify against an Englishman in court. Welshmen may not sell their property without, the, you know, without royal permission. But Welshmen cannot do whatever, right? That's percolating away in the background the whole time. And it, that gets just totally intertwined with the chronic mismanagement in, in Wales. And uh, small towns in particular, where they are dominated by English townsmen, a whole wave of them set out to get new town charters banning, wealth, banning Welsh people from living in those towns. You know, ima- just imagine that now, you know, uh, you know, the, the sort of town elders getting together and saying, well, let's just, just get from the king a, a new charter saying that the Welshmen can't live here and we can just confiscate all their property arbitrarily. And that's going on right, right into the 1400s. And Slandavri is one of the last, you know, in the mid-1400s. they got a charter and it says, you know, if, if any Welshman buys property here, we should have the right to be able to confiscate it and give it to the king. Uh, that's still going on. You know, every time you feel the pinch economically, particularly in an urban setting, the English minority use that as an opportunity very often, you know, to in some way kind of one-up their Welsh neighbours. You know what I mean? It's, it's just kind of... Really? I mean, I mean, it's systemic racism in every possible sense of the word, you know, economically, socially, culturally. It's there. And yes, you have these great stories like there's a Welshman who helps defend Brecon against Glendore and he's later honoured by a plaque in the city. Great. That happens. But you know what else happens is landovery a few miles away, knocks out a new charter that allows them to basically steal all of their Welsh neighbor's property. Because they can. And that all ends in 1536. And there's a really good anecdote, and I'm trying to remember which town it said and I think it's in Carnarvon in North Wales, because Carnarvon is the royal capital for administering North Wales, where, where when the act is read out, uh, a short while later, a bunch of Welshmen ride into town on horses, waving swords, which would have been illegal uh, under the previous ordinances for Welshmen to be armed in town. They ride in, they ride around, shouting, now we're as good as you are, you know. And so that it's it's a moment of relief. You know, Henry VII has come to the throne. Uh, and there are all kinds of other chronic, endemic problems with crime in Wales. Uh, Wales is all carved up into little administrative units. Somebody commits a serious crime in one, like murder, or, or even trafficking. There's traffic, we know of examples, there's trafficking of young women to be sold into slavery in brothels between one lordship and another even though it's only a few miles to the next administrative district owned by the next English marcher lord, you you can't do anything about it. You know, you can't prosecute this. People selling pardons for cash for people living in, you know, who've committed a crime in the county next door. It's really common, you know, and all of those problems, they're not stopped, but legally a framework is created to stop them uh, with the Act of Union. Now we think of the Act of Union as a kind of I think popularly is some kind of tragedy which robbed Wales of its separateness. But the reality is Wales was a a checkerboard of usually disastrously run uh, little micro kingdoms with their each one had their own little system of systemic anti-Welsh racism. And all of that's just blotted out at a stroke.
3: I think that's a really interesting point. I think when I spoke with um, Martin Johns a a while back about modern Wales, um, he mentioned this as a sort of um, perhaps a turning point where Wales in many occasions started leaning into points of difference with England in order to sort of differentiate themselves. But there was also this phenomenon of um, this real embrace of uh, England, English culture, because they were on this equal footing. And that's the phenomenon you're talking about here.
4: Yeah, there's a weird kind of interaction happened. So some of these families, like the the Herberts or the Stradlings or other families in, in South Wales, they really have become embedded in this uh, sort of emergent, I think for the first time we could use in a political sense, the word kind of British sort of culture. And in, in fact, in this period after the Act of Union, Wales becomes, uh, in a way, not a tourist destination destination, but almost fashionable to have some British connection, but British in the sense of this older, deeper culture of the British British Isles. Uh, no, one, no aristocrat broke up in London and said, oh, I wish I'm Welsh. But on the other hand, you could lean into your own culture a little bit. You didn't have to, if you're from South Wales, you no longer had to pretend to be, you know, to kind of pretend to be English to your English friends, Welsh to your Welsh friends. You know, now you you can kind of lean into the the Britishness. And of course, this older word Britain refers to people speaking the the old Britonic language, the language that would would evolve into Welsh and evolve into Cornish and evolve into Breton. And uh, it's a language and culture that existed in Britain before uh, the invasion of Anglo-Saxons and jutes after the romans left you know that those other peoples that turned english england into a place where they spoke english another language
3: interesting okay well i think very sadly we'll we'll have to um sort of wrap up begin to wrap up this episode but if i can ask you Matthew, um for any sort of other resources or or um places where people can go to find out more about welsh history particularly in this period what where would you point our listeners to
4: I mean the, the standard history of Wales that everybody should pick up at some point is, is still John Davis's history of Wales for all his faults it's it's a good read and uh, it's full of great little anecdotes you know uh, Saint David, for example, uh, creates a miracle atlandy Brevi where supposedly he raises a hill underneath him as he's speaking about God and Jesus and and uh, uh, of course the the great quote about that in uh, in his book is, what more superfluous miracle did you need in Slandui Brevi than an extra <laughs> hill? <he said. laughs> but but if you're interested in, in more detail, certainly the types of social and cultural issues I'm, I'm interested in, uh, I mean, you could have a look at my book, The Economy of Wales, 1067 to 1536, with the University of Wales Press, which is not just about the economy, but about the whole society that underpinned it and how it changed throughout this period. It's only about 150 pages. It's meant for a you know, a general clued up audience to be able to pick it up and enjoy it. And if you're interested in in more detail uh, on some of these topics, you can have a look at my podcast, History, Darkness and Light, where the second episode is all about the history of race and race law in medieval Wales.
0: That was Matthew Stevens. You can find out more about the history of Wales on our website at historyextra.com forward slash location forward slash Wales. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman, and Brittany Colley.